you're right. I, I chose it. I was given a choice of two passages, and I sort of thought to myself, children of heaven, yeah, that sounds, that sounds nice and easy. That's, you know, I can talk about God's love. I can talk about following him. I can, you know, all, all the easy stuff that, that you read in the Gospels. Um, and, and then I read it. Um, and we've got a passage which has uh, Jesus talking about execution by drowning, self-mutilation, and it's one of three times, I believe, when Matthew records Jesus talking about hell. So... Uh, nice and easy for a first to preach here. Um, and if you're anything like me, I think I can sometimes come to the Gospels and be like, which, which Jesus are we getting today? Is it, is it the nice Jesus, the one who sort of fits my expectations of what he should be like? Is it the one who, you know, he tells you things like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, he, t- he was born in a stable and he, he, there's no crying that he made when he was born there. He, he feeds the 5,000 and he forgives our sins. And, you know, all of these things, apart from maybe the no crying he makes, are true. He, those are recorded in, in the Gospels. But then there's also grumpy Jesus. Grumpy Jesus chases people in the temple with a whip. He called Peter Satan in the passage we looked at last week. He curses fig trees and he warns of sort of oncoming doom and, and gloom and things like that. And we can think, like, is it going to be the one that, that fits my boxes and my expectations or, or, or the other Jesus? Which one are we getting today? But of course, there's just one Jesus. He's the Jesus who both is who we think he is, but also sometimes isn't who we think he is or who we might want him to be. Um, and this is a passage all about Jesus trying to reshape his followers' perspectives to uh, change who they think he is, of what his kingdom is like, and also how they should act in light of those facts. Um, so before we dive into this, let's sort of go back a few verses into the end of Matthew 17, where we get this really weird little passage um, where Peter is asked uh, if Jesus pays the temple tax, and he's he sort of just goes, oh yeah, yeah, he does. Um, and then he has a little conversation with Jesus, where uh, sort of he, Jesus points out, well, why, you know, I'm actually the guy this temple's for. I, this is my house. The idea of me paying the temple tax doesn't that strike you as kind of slightly odd? It's, it's you know it's offensive to Jesus if you think about it. It's saying this is his house and he has to pay to enter. Um, but Jesus tells Peter, so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them as uh, for my tax and yours. It's a really weird passage. We don't talk about it much. Um, I don't think I'd remember the one where Jesus gets the coin from the fish if you ask me to name his miracles. Um, but it highlights something really crucial, that Jesus is more interested in humbling himself to human authorities and to religious authorities than in exercising the rights and privileges that he has by the right of who he is. And that's what the uh, disciples have just seen. They've just seen him do this. And now they're thinking, so is this is this guy the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The guy who does that, and you can kind of you can kind of see where they're coming from. Imagine if you were like walking past Buckingham Palace and you saw King Charles queuing with all the American tourists by like that entrance instead of going in through the great gates at the front. You go, oh, that that must be a lookalike. He wouldn't be buying a ticket to his own house. Um, but that there is the problem with the disciples' attitudes. They're looking at the examples of earthly power to try and understand heavenly power. And we think about their expectations. Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be the Messiah or to have people say, you are the Messiah. There were people who came before who were revolutionaries, who were resistance leaders, who were ready to sort of by military power take on the Roman Empire. The world had prepared them to expect a military leader to restore uh, the nation of Israel and bring about this kingdom of heaven by force. 
those guys probably wouldn't have paid the temple tax. And think about the kingdoms that the um, uh, disciples were used to hearing about. The Roman Empire, led by Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the one who was sort of ruling over them at the time. The Babylon of King Nebuchadnezzar, who had exiled the people of God. Or Pharaoh in Egypt, or Herod. They would never pay to enter their own houses. Despite how much they had heard from Jesus about the radically different nature of the kingdom of heaven, these earthly human examples of power still seem to be informing the disciples in their perspective of heavenly power. And I think that's why Jesus answers their question in such a weird way, because he never sort of says, you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or you know, he never points to someone. He's sort of going, oh, you're still looking at them to look at me. This is still the sort of the framework or the perspective you're looking at me from. You're looking at the emperors and the kings, and you're thinking, okay, the, well, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven must look something like that. They're not using God's perfectness to judge the world's imperfectness, but looking at the world's imperfectness and applying that onto God. Um, so does that help us see why Jesus decides to sort of plop a small child in front of them instead? He's calling on them to radically change their perspective. So who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm not being rhetorical. Who is it? Anyone? Yes. <laughs> it starts with a J. Yes, also, uh, Jesus. Whoever takes this lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what happened. Jesus became a child. So the disciples have tried to understand God in a way which works with their existing perspectives. They say, oh, the kingdom of heaven, like any worldly kingdom, must have a greatest. I must try and become like that. And they probably look something like a Caesar or a Pharaoh or something like that. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's not what I'm doing here. He sees that they're still holding on to those worldly perspectives. Um, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, as it says in Philippians. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as, I w- as you will. He led by example. And like it says, he, became, or he took the lowly position of a child, and he became the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What would it look like to follow that in our lives? How does he call us to do so? Jesus is saying, don't maximize yourself. Don't try and inflate yourself and make yourself bigger than you are. Actually, I'd rather that you showed how much you love me by reducing yourself so that you can give me as much space as possible to act. Reduce your power, your ideas, your influence to make as much room for me as possible. In fact, reduce yourself to the position of a little child. Not to a slave or to a subject of an empire, but to a little child. That's the closeness and the vulnerability with which we can follow God. We can follow our Father with confidence. Um, and I think there's a fear that by following this command, we might become immature, or we might sort of, you know, you might have heard people say, yes, yes, become childlike, but don't become childish. So, like, there's a difference between these two things. And that's not wrong, that's helpful. Um, Jesus isn't saying, you know, not to be curious and not to um, try and understand the Bible or to get his wisdom or to you know, take our responsibilities seriously. Um, but I think that as well as childishness, there's also um, a tendency we can have towards adultishness, where we can sort of try and um, we can embody all the worst behaviours of, of trying to keep up this, expi- this uh, appearance that we have it all together. In my experience, um, the closer you are to having just left childhood, the more desperate you are to like, try and prove you're mature and know what you're doing, the easier it is to act very adult-ish. Um, I came here to study politics four years ago, 
and like most, I'd be willing to say, um, first-year politics students, I sort of arrived thinking I had it all figured out. I knew what I was talking about. I sort of knew how the world works. And I went to my lectures, not because I was interested in seeing new ways of understanding the world, but I wanted to validate what I already believed. And I wanted to have better ways of arguing against opposing views. Um, and that wasn't just an attitude I had in lecture halls. I would read the Bible and I'd be going, okay, which bits agree with me? Okay, well, let's read those more. Which bits don't agree with me? Okay, let's find an, an explanation for why that's wrong and, and just keep going without sort of examining that at all. I made up my mind based on what felt right to me and then I go, okay, let's look for the evidence for that. Uh, that 18-year-old Barney had convinced himself that not only did he have all the answers for how the world should work, but that it was his job to fashion a version of God in his mind which agreed with him on everything. And if I got a hint that God was trying to sort of break out of that little box I was trying to put him in, I'd try and build a barrier, a barrier and go, no, 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 let's not actually look at that instead. Why was I so scared of this idea that I might be wrong about something, that the infinite God of the universe might have more ideas than someone who's about 20? That, or even that someone else might be able to help. You know, I barely asked for any help then in my coursework in first year. Why was that? Why, why did I think I'd be able to do it all on my own? Why do I still sometimes think that? The irony is that when we try and avoid childishness and sort of gain our own maturity, we sort of end up much more childish than if we'd admitted our own vulnerability in the first place. It's only when we acknowledge these failings and our weaknesses that we can be given a much more mature faith from a God who can work to turn our weaknesses into strength. And for me, a big thing I had to come to terms with this was this idea of obedience, this word that sort of, you read in the Bible, you go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. That sounds quite scary. The idea that if I seem to agree or disagree with God on something, that actually I should take his word for it instead of going, oh, well, let's actually ignore him on that one. Uh, and Jesus in this passage sees how the disciples are still trying to hold on to their own will and their worldview. And he understands how his followers are always, throughout time, going to struggle to let go of their wills and their worldviews. That obedience to him is difficult. It's not, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. Um, so in the middle of this passage, Jesus helps them change their perspectives with both some reassurance and some challenge. So Jesus reassures his followers, his little ones, how seriously God takes those who abuse, neglect, or mistreat his children. If anyone causes these little, uh, one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such, thing must, such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Because childlikeness comes with a real vulnerability. Becoming like little children involves trusting God, not because we've reasoned or rationalised the fact that we agree with him, but because we know him, and we know his character, and we know that he is good. And I think we've all heard stories of people who take advantage of that vulnerability, where it's been misplaced. Some of us will have experienced that. And that's why it's so uh, important that church is a place where we can be safely vulnerable before God. If you're looking for a passage which can justify DBS checks, this is a good one to start with. It's safeguarding and things like that help us to, uh, and help little ones to come before God and to come, do so safely. And Jesus is really keen to remind ourselves here that he's the God of justice. I think for two reasons. Firstly, as a reminder of who is really in charge, that there will come a day when all is put right and justice rules the earth. Um, that younger Barney wasn't so happy with the idea that God's righteousness involved that those who hurt his children face consequences. That didn't seem like the nice Jesus I'd invented. 
But the alternative is a God who doesn't take that suffering seriously. The second is that he understands that we have that tendency to try and understand God through the earthly authorities around us. Um, God recognizes that, you know, the Israelites who lived in um, ancient Egypt under Pharaoh kind of uh, might have assumed that they saw the Pharaoh and thought maybe God would be like that instead, um, instead of sort of seeing his true nature. You know, I'm fortunate that I can look to the support and love of my earthly dad and see a glimpse of how my heavenly dad has loved and supported me. But I've seen people who can struggle without that and don't have that and how that can really be a barrier to how we relate to God and see him as the father. And Jesus, yeah, he takes it really seriously. He identifies these as stumbling blocks. He points out that his little ones have angels in heaven who always see the face of his father in heaven. In other words, he's saying, do you really want to mess with the people who have advocates with direct access to the face of God? So like any loving father, God is passionate about the safety of his children. He loves us. And for Jesus, that position of authority he has is not to be used for his own gain, for he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus makes it clear in verse 7 that if anyone else causes me to sin or to fall from God, we're both responsible for that. If I wasn't responsible, then they wouldn't have caused me to sin, so it wouldn't be a bad thing, if that makes sense. Um, So Jesus is saying, what stumbling blocks must we get rid of for our sake and for the sake of others? If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Um, So I put some saws and some eye gouges on the tables at the back. And um, if any of your uh, body parts are causing you to sin, we've got our amputation team and they'd be more than happy to... No. The good news is he's not literally calling us, I'm sure you'd already figured that out, he's not literally calling us to mutilate our own bodies. He's asking us to do something far harder than that. He's asking us to be willing to drop everything that gets in the way of following him. His first uh, century Jewish followers would have understood these metaphors much more naturally than we do standing here. Um, I was very much helped by the guys who run the Bible Project YouTube channel for this, because he talks about the hand, the foot, and the eye, but what he's doing to do that is to get attention to matters of the heart and of the mind. So it's less about the hand, but what we do, how we act. It's less about the foot and more about the path we're on, the the way we're walking, are we walking on God's road? It's less about the eye and more more about what we see, what we let influence us. What might we do and see and what path might we walk that we're not really so interested in chopping off? What behaviors am I inclined to view as less serious or to brush off instead of bringing before God and taking seriously, saying, "Is is that honoring you or is it not? I don't I want to ask these questions. I don't want to hang on to these things. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Is it better for you to enter life having turned down that last drink or looking like a Puritan every now and then or having decided, actually, I'm not going to talk about that person behind their back? I don't know what it is for you. Um, a lot of the songs we sing about each week have lines like, I surrender to you, Jesus, take it all. You know, we're talking about how we want to give our entire lives to God. I think sometimes when we make it more specific and we talk about individual things, we sort of go, oh, you want, you want that bit too? I, I said I'd give you it all, I know, but that, are you sure? That one as well? I'm preaching this to myself a lot. I don't want to sound too much like I'm judging from the pulpit. Um, do we feel like we don't want to check with God ever that something's okay, but we just want to assume it is? Maybe that's because it feels massive. 
oh, I don't want to check if my career is right with God because that could change my entire life. Or maybe because it feels so tiny. I don't want to check if my TV viewing habits are right before God because why on earth would he care about that? And are we, as a community and a church, desperate to cultivate spaces where we can bring these into the open and explore them safely? I'm not saying that you know, you'd have to get up in front of the whole congregation and tell us what you're struggling with or what you're asking, but is there a space where we can talk about these things? If this passage is about anything, it's about how desperate God is to help us see his perspective over our lives, that his communities help us to gain that perspective. How desperate he is that we understand the closeness we can have to him and how seriously he takes any barrier or stumbling block or anything else that gets in the way of that. And so Jesus isn't making a dramatic change of tone when he talks, or when he pivots from talking about chopping off hands to the parable of the lost sheep. Both images about doing whatever it takes to know God fully. Um, perhaps we've heard this too much. I know that I can't remember a time where I haven't heard this kind of parable. It's in your Sunday schools, it's in everything. Um, and perhaps we don't necessarily see it because we're so familiar with it. But if I had 100 sheep and I counted them one day, I went 99, I think I'd be a bit inclined to go, it's close enough. That's most of them. That's, you know, do I really want to leave 99% of my sheep to go and get one of them? That's what God does. He's desperate that we don't settle for 99% of his children following him. And church attendance is nowhere near 99%. And in the same way, he's not interested in us following us, him with 99% of our own lives, but in all that we do. And that's not the voice of a controlled freak or a slave driver, but of a father who wants all his children to know his righteous ways in all areas of their lives, to lavish them with the gift of his presence in their work, their rest, their mealtimes, their socializing. Do we trust God enough to believe that doing this is not just you know, maybe the morally better thing to do, but also a more joyful and heart, uh, wholehearted way of living. What would it look like to do that today? Um, I want to sort of follow in what uh, Lynette was doing and leave space uh, for us to name these things and to sort of discuss this um, and to sort of ask God what it would look like for us to live individually or in a community uh, with a desire not to settle for a faith which isn't 100%. What areas are we less keen to bring to God and check whether he approves of? For me, I don't want to sound Puritan. I don't want to say things like, you know, God, do you, what music should I be listening to? That feels really, you know, almost authoritarian to me. But I'd much rather feel like a Puritan or look like one if that brings me closer to God. And I'd rather do that than refuse to let him live in one area of my life. Um, so what I'm going to do is, is pray briefly and then... Uh, I'm going to leave some space before with the band coming up again. Yeah, um, to invite us to turn to our neighbours in pairs or in threes, uh, and if we feel able to invite each other to name these things in front of each other. Father God, I am sorry for when I've acted adultish in front of you. For the times when I've looked to you to justify what I already think and do, instead of asking what your will is. I want to know you in all the areas of my life, Lord to stand before your throne as your child, ready to hear and obey your voice. Help me to see myself and those around me with your perspective today. In your name.